0: able to come and to share God's Word with all of you this morning. You can turn to Exodus chapter 30 verses 43 through 46. I know that in your bulletin it says Leviticus 1, but as the Lord led me this week, I decided we'd be in Exodus today. We still are looking at, guess who's moving in? And I have a question for you as you turn to Exodus 30, 43 through 46. And that is, if someone was to come to your house or your townhouse or your apartment or maybe your room inside of your house, what would they come to know about you? How might they then relate to you differently based on your home? Well, in essence, that's what we are looking at today, but we're taking it from the angle of looking at God's house in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. So let me read for us from the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. There I will meet with the people of Israel, says Yahweh, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It was probably 15 years ago I was sitting with a family friend around the dinner table in my parents' home. And he had recently married a Presbyterian woman and was beginning to walk with Christ, maybe for the first time in his entire life, I had really begun walking with Christ only some five years prior, and so we were discussing things related to the gospel, and it came around to prayer. And my friend said, you know, I struggle with prayer, because I know I can pray for, you know, famines in Rwanda, or or difficult political situations here or there, or for tsunamis in Japan, uh, or, or just for the for the millions and millions of people who don't know the gospel, these big things. I I know I can pray for that because God is so big, God is so awesome. He he he's just you know unbe- unbe- he's beyond. I can pray for these big things, but you know, can my Girl, get into the preschool of her choose. Uh, you know, of our choice. Uh, my ankle's hurting today. I just feel like I can't pray to God about that because it's just these little small things. And God's so big. I don't mean to disparage my friend. We're all in a learning process. But but that's he, he's right on one hand. Of course, God is high and He is holy and He is beyond. But it's He's also missing something, right? And then on the other hand, and I noticed this more in years past, uh, people would wear shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy, right? And it would have a corny picture of Jesus with like a thumbs up or something like that. It's almost moving into mockery, but people who'd wear them often would be sincere. And they were trying to say something. And It, it was more to the effect of God in Jesus is, is lowly and he is humble and he is friendly, and of course, that is true, too. Now, both of them are seeing something true, but both of them are leaving off something, something that we see held together in the tabernacle, and as we'll see beyond that, too. And of course, like I said, we're all learners, and it's hard. I mean, just think about how you've dealt with the triune nature of God. God is one in three. He's an individual, and he's a community. I mean, we, we all are learning how to relate to God in this tension, and Yet sin enters in. And here's the problem, is that some will know that, yes, God is high, towering in his holiness, and God is lowly in his friendliness, but they choose to only emphasize one over the other because one makes them comfortable and one makes them uncomfortable. And to the degree that we only relate to God in a partial or deformed sort of way, We will have a deformed knowledge of him. We will have an untruthful knowledge of ourselves as a consequence. And and as we seek to work together with God in his great mission to bring the knowledge of himself to the nations through Jesus Christ, our mission will be untruthful. It will be deformed. It will be off kilter as well. And so what will help us to hold this tension of God's towering holiness And his lowly friendliness together, well, it is going to his house. It is looking at his house in the Old Testament, which began as a tabernacle. And so today, I want to look at three things. First of all, if you were to have gone to the tabernacle, you would see that God is a king. That's what the Israelites would have seen. They would also see that God is towering in his holiness, and they would also have seen that God is lowly in his friendliness. And so just by going to his house, this knowledge of God would be imparted, and a right relating to God would result. So let's just consider first that reality that God is a king— would simply emanate from this home that he commanded be built for him. If you were to turn, we don't have to, but if you were to turn with me to chapter 25 of Exodus, I'll read for you. The people were were called to give a contribution for the tabernacle to be built. And so 25 verse 3 says, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from Israel. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and so on. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then he goes on and speaks about a very important piece of furniture in verse 10. He says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. As I speak of the ark, I know some of you might be thinking back to Indiana Jones, and actually that ark did look, I guess, something like what's being described here. But anyways, imagine this. You're living in a tent in Israel, and your tent is just plain, right? But there's one person who's, who's moved into the neighborhood and their house is, is made of gold and silver and bl- bronze and blue and purple and scarlet threading and white linen. And now you might be saying, what's the big deal? I mean, we, we've got white linen and stuff like that in our houses. It'd be more like this in our modern day, you know, you all and the people in in in, in Martinsburg probably have uh, floors made of wood or carpet or linoleum or concrete, right? But then some guy moves into your neighborhood who has trucks coming in bringing marble, different colored marble to make his floors, right? This guy is going to be distinct from everybody else in Martinsburg. Everyone's going to be aware. Did you see that marble going down right. Everyone's going to know this person is of some importance. Maybe he's the mayor. Maybe he's the governor. Maybe he's just a billionaire. I don't know. For Israel, though, in the ancient Near East, when they saw a place like this, made of gold and silver and bronze and all of these fine materials, it said king. It said God. Because in the ancient Near East, this was the kind of house that a king would live in. Further, there's this furniture. And for a king, this ark would be something like a footstool. This ark would be back in the very throne room of God. And again, the ark spoke that this is a king who is sitting upon his throne in our midst. And of course, if he's a king, then that means he's the authority. And if he's the authority then that means that he's the most distasteful person that Americans can think of. Because one thing Americans don't like, and I would even go as far as to say anybody in the world at this point doesn't, is to have an authority over them who says, you need to think about me this way. You need to think about yourself this way. No, 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 no. no. You can't decide for yourself who you are. You must think of yourself this way. And your purpose in life is what I say it is. That is probably the most distasteful thing you could go out on the streets of Martinsburg and tell people, even if they're Christians, I think we still get rubbed the wrong way about this. But it's what we need. Right now, uh, people in the United States are are telling people, they're telling us that what we need is to to find our own identity within ourselves. It's, It's as if we are our own king. We get to decide who we are. We get to decide if we're cisgender or odd gender or him or her or both. And that is supposed to be salvation. And what God has done is he has saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to bring them into covenant with him as king so that he can tell them who they are. And my friends, this is true freedom. This is what we need. Apart from him, we are, as Jesus said, lost. We cannot know who we are. And so guess who's moving into the neighborhood? Someone who is king and who has the authority to free us up into the true knowledge of himself, true knowledge of ourselves, and our purpose with him. But what's also made known in this house, as the Israelites would approach it, is that God is holy. That God is holy. And holy is a word that I think we need to continually go back and say, well, what does it mean? What does holy mean, after all? On, on one hand, it simply means unique, one of a kind. And God, is the cre- as the creator, is certainly one of a kind. There is no one like him. Go through the book of Isaiah and read again and again. There is no one like me. Who will you compare to me? He is the creator. Everything else is creation. So he's utterly unique. But that's not all of it. Maybe when you hear the word holiness, you're thinking of moral purity. And that would be on point. He is also morally pure. Some, on the Bible Project, for example, you can go online or watch a, a video called Holiness, they compare holiness to the sun, uh, something that gives light and heat and life to the earth. But if you get too close to it, you will be annihilated. In the same way, we who are related to our first father, Adam, and have inherited the heart disease of sin, that which keeps our hand shaking up at God in rebellion, we who would draw near to him who is perfect, who is light, and in whom there is no darkness whatsoever, who is good beyond imagination and conception, if we were to simply draw near to him, we would be annihilated The Israelites would realize from this house. Let me read a short passage from Exodus 19 to illustrate that. It says in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 9b, "...when Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, "'Go to the people of Israel and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments.'" and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. God is towering. In his holiness. You couldn't even touch your pinky finger's nail to this mountain without dying. Being annihilated in the moment. Because of the problem of our sin in the presence of a holy God. And so the tabernacle was built in the same way. There was the, the house The actual house was the tabernacle, and it had a larger front room called the holy place and a smaller throne room called the most holy place. But around that house, you had that white linen and bronze creating a courtyard. There were essentially buffer zones. There was the courtyard, then there was the holy place had its own veil, then you had the most holy place with another veil. So that... Nobody in an unclean or impure state, and that's where Leviticus comes in, could enter in casually. And if anybody was able to, like some sort of football player, run through the front door of the courtyard, spin off of all of the priest's duck, and then jump into the most holy place, boom, it's over. God is is towering in his holiness, and that is why in the courtyard there was an altar, a bronze altar, so that people who were unclean and sinful could yet bring an animal for sacrifice. Sacrifice could be made that would bring the worshipers into at least a pure state so they could get near to God's house, but even then they couldn't go in. Only the priests, and only the great high priest, into the most holy place. So sacrifice is needed. Someone needs to die for you, says God's house. Something needs to die for you, says God's bronze altar. And that's why people sometimes prefer to say, Jesus is my homeboy. Because it's just too uncomfortable to say, I need somebody to die for me. You know, God is just my friend. It's, it, you know, I, I knew a guy, one of my better friends growing up, who would say, you know, God's my best friend. But then he'd go off and he'd be using drugs or he'd be doing whatever he wanted. You see, that's, that's the comfort of, of not paying attention to the towering holiness of God. But in fact, that's Slavery. We need to remember that God is towering in his holiness, and yet we need to remember that God is also lowly in his friendliness. We come back to the main passage that I read. He says in verse 43 of chapter 29, through Moses, I will meet with the people of Israel. And in verse 46, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. You see, God wants to dwell among the people, not so that he can annihilate them, okay? I mean, that's just the reality of his person in the midst of a sinful people. But he doesn't want to annihilate anybody. He's put everything in place so that people don't get annihilated and so that people can dwell in his near presence. God is personal. God is relational. In fact, the tabernacle was made to be movable. You could take it apart. You could carry it different places. The ark had rings on it. People could carry it on, 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 on poles. The priest could carry it different places because God always wanted to be with his people. If there's any Christian word that is most Christian, it would be with. It would be with because what people would learn from this house is that the ultimate goal of this community, is communion with God. The ultimate goal and purpose of our lives is communion with our Maker. And that's why God chooses to dwell amongst us. He is lowly. He comes down from heaven, down to earth, lives in a tent. and He's friendly. He wants to meet with us and yet some people are uncomfortable with that. They would rather have God just be high, so high and so far away that they might be considered to be something like deists, you know, like, like the Thomas Jefferson or some of the early uh, Americans, popular back then, popular today. People like, like God to just be somebody who's sort of like that watchmaker who just turn, gets all the pieces there and, and, and winds it up and then lets it go and leaves forever. And it's our job just to figure out by our own objective, impersonal, empirical observation what the rules and laws are of this world so that our lives can be nice and neat and tidy. Having God move towards us in this relational messiness and unpredictability, we, we, we would rather not have that. And so the idol of science. People love science. You know why? Because there's no person. We're told that there's no interpersonal relation here. Of course, science is actually nothing. It's actually scientists. Okay. But there's this myth of the impersonal, objective knowledge that we can have of the world and have no relationships and no interpersonal engagement. People prefer that myth that they prefer a God like that because relationships are messy. Relationships are unpredictable. We might be asked to do something by that which we're seeking to know. But again, we need communion with God. That's what we were created for. To know Him, as he says, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell with them. Now you might be noticing an absence in my sermon today. Maybe at this point you feel like this guy could be preaching in a Jewish synagogue for all I know. There's also an interesting absence in the tabernacle. You go back into the most holy place, the great high priest would come out and say, you know what guys, There's no statue in there. And word would get out to the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Canaanites and so on and so forth. And and they would laugh because in all of their temples, there was always an idol in there. Maybe some cow or something like that. Made of metal or wood or whatever. And people would go in and worship that idol. But as much as, as God's house was made in certain ways to be like temples back then for God's, God also tweaked it and changed it so that the right knowledge of him would be made known. And that is that God cannot be represented by an lifeless idol, by, by a piece of wood that can't see or hear or speak or act. No idol can do that. Only, really, only a human being would be Possibly, uh, the the proper creature uh, to actually be uh, somehow the the very uh, uh, tabernacle of God, you could say. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. But you see, humans were made. It says in Genesis chapters one and two, humans were made in the image and likeness of God. We were like God's statue. Uh, But we could also see and speak and hear and act. And then one day, the gospel of John, or the author John tells us in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, and this word, word, that John is using is actually a word for the pre-incarnate Son of God. That is, Jesus before he was Jesus. This is the Son of God before he became incarnate. It says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The word in Greek for dwelt is actually the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used for the tabernacle. Now, God has not come and asked his disciples, to build him a new house. But the temple would be destroyed in AD 70. There's no need for it anymore. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. This tabernacle is now a human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if you would go into the most holy place and the the great high priest would be astounded because upon the throne would now be a man. And he would stand up and he'd walk out of the most holy place. He'd walk out of the holy place. He'd walk right up to the altar and he would be sacrificed willingly on that altar for the sins of the world, for the sins of the whole community that now That unbridgeable chasm created by our sin and in light of God's towering holiness could be bridged. And all who would come and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who had to die for them would be reconciled to God through His death and would be given new life through His resurrection so that we might know God and His kingly and towering holiness and his wondrous lowly humble friendliness and we might then live out our many missions for the great mission of god to make himself known to all the nations of the earth for their blessing through jesus christ Jesus is that house we now look to. It is as we look at Jesus that the towering holiness of God and the lowly friendliness of God are brought together. And as we read Scripture, we can't mistake it. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. And here we hear of Jesus' towering holiness. Then... I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus won in his towering holiness. The King. But listen to what he says to John. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus puts his hand on him. He comforts him. This same Lord Jesus is one who is toweringly holy today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And know that although he is towering in his greatness, in his incomprehensible ability and in his wonder and in his purity, he nevertheless puts his hand on you and reminds you, fear not. I have given my life for you that I might dwell amongst you forever. I have given you my spirit as a down payment that what you are already tasting of the presence of God in your life, you will one day taste in all of its fullness in ways you have not yet begun to conceive. Fear not. I am with you. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the sound of that baby in the back of the church, Lord. For it is only as we become children, knowing our poverty, knowing our need, knowing our need for dependence upon you, that we enter into the kingdom of God. Our Father, bring your word as we heard it today into our hearts and help us to be children who accept you in all that you have revealed about yourself so that we might know you rightly. Lord, that we might know ourselves rightly, Lord, and that we might participate in your great mission rightly to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we pray this knowing that we're heard in Jesus' name. Amen.